I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, or however you hear podcasts in your home. We appreciate it. Pod 617 for the Boston Podcast Network. I'm here with my very famous co-host, Mr. David Gallant. He's the Beatles professor at Suffolk University. He's been teaching Beatles course there for over 10 years, maybe even 15. We are brought, in, brought to you in part by Subaru of New England. We hope everybody's doing well right now. If you are listening, we appreciate it. We're very excited about our guest today, Professor Gallant. The, the two books that this man has published are truly extraordinary, spectacular. I have a great story about how, how I acquired my copy of the book. The, the book I'm speaking about is Leninology, and uh, the author on our show also uh, published a book called Eight Arms to Hold You, both mind-boggling books, interesting and lots of fun to read. I welcome our guest today. Mr. Chip Mattinger. Chip, how are you? Did I pronounce your last name correctly? That's it. You got it right. Okay. Thanks, Chachi. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, Chip. I've known about you for a while. We have a mutual friend, Eric Taros, and uh, I go to Eric's house often, and he pulled out Leninology one day and said, you got to see this book, and I was truly blown away. What a achievement uh, on your end. This rises above virtually every other book I've read on the Beatles. And it's kind of a day-to-day journal. And it took you, what, 15 years to put, to make this particular book? That's right. That's right. Spent 15 years on that one. Uh, started basically uh, right after Eight Arms to Hold You was published. Uh, I was gathering information for an update for that. And I never got past John. So that's wow. how the Leninology <laughs> Project come about. <laughs> Now, Eight Arms to Hold You is a solo Beatle compendium. Is that book still available? Is it still in print? Uh, is it out there? My co-author and I, Mark Easter, uh, updated it as if it was a, if we knew then what we know now type of uh, outlook. And it still covers just through the year 2000, but we published that as an ebook two years ago. Wow. Since the original's out of print and, and gathering three wow. figures on online so wanted and, to know, make sure that was still available and that's why you know i i when i'm holding my leninology book i try to make sure my hands are clean that i don't open it too often because i believe and eric eric and i talked about this i believe down the road long after you and i and the professor are gone this book is going to be worth a ton of money it's such an achievement to read you could just open any page it's lots of fun Research like that is truly, did you really, did you, did you enter this thinking this is going to take 15 years? Uh, basically, I was 13 years late on a two-year project. <laughs> so, no, I did not think it was going to take that long, but uh, it, it just kept growing and growing. And as, we, as my co-author and I, Scott Riley, interviewed people that said, well, have you talked to so-and-so? Well, you ought to talk to them. And then that person would turn us on to some other people. And it just kept growing. And at one point, we just kind of had to draw the line and say, okay, we're going to go with what we have now. Wow. It's a pretty amazing book, right, Professor? Well, it, it, it is. And um, unfortunately, 
um, Chachi, I, I am not in possession of the actual artifact as you are. I, I was going down the successive or the succession of rabbit holes, as Chip has talked about, that that made that two-year project into a 15-year sojourn. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, but uh, I would love to sort of get my hands on the actual artifact at some point because uh, just by the look of it, Chachi, it um, the the book itself, it seems to be a, a great little experiment or um, uh, a piece of design, right? And if and if anything, uh, we know of at least John's relationship with Yoko and their and their 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 passages in and out of the art trade. Uh, design became very very important as it was as it was for the Beatles, and it's a well designed piece there. Uh, and so when you open it, and then it does sort of you know. <laughs> issue forth this 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 Trevor tro- uh, treasure trove of of detail and um and I want to use the word minutia but not in any negative context because it the the minutia and the detail are just um uh they they're striking uh because of the way different voices come in and then you can actually pinpoint with um, without knowing a lot of context, you may want to find out beyond that first detail that is given. Okay, then where else am I going uh, around the fact that May '68 and revolts in Paris are happening? While he's giving us details of May '68 of what's happening in the studio, out of the studio, and the Song Revolution, and those those sort of um, uh, details are fantastic. Because I always tell my students. Even in more of uh, some of the standard texts, like like Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head, please, please, please do not avoid reading footnotes. Footnotes are where there's a lot of joy to be found. And I often saw, at least in the in the sections of Chip's um, text that I was looking at, that these are like <laughs> um, uh, footnotes, but novels in miniature. And that's where always the great things are. You know, I mean, you I never would have gotten through Shakespeare as a kid or as an adult or graduate school without the footnotes and without the glosses. And these are a whole wonderful um, series of those. And it's just, uh, it's a great way. It's a great way to put the story together, you know, in, in, its, in its individual tiny pieces like that. But I, I do long to have the actual, the actual tone itself because it looks like it's just a great piece of design. Well, it is beautiful, Chip. Congratulations. Do you know how I got my copy, Chip? I my do, time. but I'll, I'll let you tell the story. And I wanted to say one thing, Please. one little trick. If you need to clean it up, just a touch of lighter fluid on a, on a paper, paper towel and rub it on the book. And that'll take care of any, any, uh, cleaning that needs to be done on the cover. Wow. Look at that. That is amazing. <laughs> That's like a Heloise hint there, you know? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chip, I love the book. I don't know, professor, if you heard, but we did a John Lennon show on his birthday, a virtual fundraiser for the region theater. I hosted it with my, dear friend Eric Taros, and we had Boston area musicians singing John Lennon songs, and we had an auction. And so um, we were talking about this book as being an auction item, and I said to Eric on, on camera, boy, I love this book. There's one book I don't have. And uh, the end of the evening came along, and I heard the bids were high, upwards of $500 for the book, and, and it was autographed by Chip and Scott, and Eric asked uh, if we should autograph it too. So we autographed it on the sticker there on the inside of the book under, under chips autograph. And 
the end of the evening, uh, the show went, it was supposed to be two hours long, Chip. It went three and a half hours long. And uh, at the end of the night, the manager of the region came up to me and said, he hands me a box with your book in it. And I said, well, what's this? He says, well, the person who bid on it apparently is an old friend of yours, uh, lived in Florida. He heard that you love the book and he bid $500 on it and told uh, Leland at the region to give the book to me. So I was blown away that first, you know, the book went for $500, but I will tell you chippers, if I had to purchase it, $500 is worth it. It's just a fantastic book. So thank you. Congratulations. So let's get into a little bit of it. And, uh, you know, the, Tachi, it, just, just one thing. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the way you received the book, would that be an example of instant karma? It was instant karma. Yes, correct. <laughs> yes, correct. But Chip, did you now listen? I've always been a Yoko fan when I was younger and, uh, you know, John was, you know, taken up with Yoko and I still have my wedding album. And when I, I bought it at the Harvard coop when I was a kid and, uh, but I, I'm a first generation Beatle fan. I, I'm older than, you know, how, how I look, I, I probably would add. Um, so I was a big fan of Yoko regardless, because if John Lennon loved Yoko Ono, I loved her too. Whatever John wanted to, to enrich his life. But a lot of people still do a lot of people still think Yoko broke up the band. And uh, did you get pushback that this is actually a John and Yoko book? So there's a lot of Yoko information in there. There, there is a lot of Yoko information in there. And it's because there wouldn't have been a, a John story without her. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's incredible how much she uh, influenced his artwork, both in the musical sense and in the the uh, artistic world, the, the the drawings and the events and the happenings and the the sculptures and the like. He was more how Yoko was maligned in the music industry. He was more maligned in the artistic community. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, But yeah, there has been a little pushback, but it was, you know, she had to be in the book and we uh, treated her, you know, fairly and respectfully. And uh, I hope it came across that way. I I think it it certainly did. I'm still reading it, but yeah. And, you know, this is for a guy, if you have a Beatles radio show, this is a great accompaniment to the show. I mean, you add uh all information that's worthy true and meticulously researched professor when you teach your class how do your students react to yoko well um some come with uh, uh some received notions uh from uh maybe their parents or other things they had read where yoko beyond her role in the life of uh the beatles um, had become her own sign or or symbol, uh, semiotically of um, to be quote unquote a Yoko Ono was to sort of automatically be some sort of disruptive force and everything like that. Um, but I think that they are um, uh, most of them, you know, become a little bit uh, a little bit hipper to that uh, by the time uh, John uh, meets her and, and she she enters the the Beatles world that. Um, they really do believe that there were um, signs or processes or tensions as they grew up and grew together and eventually grew apart, not just personally, interpersonally, but musically, that um, it, it was not one person's doing that was their undoing. 
that um, they were responsible for their own breakup, uh, as well as, you know, the changes in the music business and their own legal wranglings. Um, so uh, they may think that they don't quite understand her art and they may not understand um, his, uh, her uh, attraction, uh, um, the attraction that John felt to her. That's one thing that they don't quite understand. They're, they're beyond sort of, I think, more recently in the last five to 10 years, beyond uh, blaming her and um, more focused on uh, uh, deconstructing or looking at the problems that they endured and people's reactions to her. They understand it now in the in the light of a more enlightened time as if it wasn't just um, uh, latent, it was blatant racism, uh, a lot of that. And it was fear of the unknown. And um, uh, they're, they're very much, uh, much more aware of that. Of course, you know, they also look at it in terms of a family dynamic, a divorce, there's a child uh, in uh, looking at John's, you know, later life where he becomes the ultimate dad. And he had gone through being the ultimate bad dad, just like his father early on. So they kind of look at that dynamic and they understand it more in those terms, as opposed to uh, uh, blaming her for, um, uh, for the breakup. Uh, um, she may have brought to light, I think, maybe impulses in John that were going to draw him away from the Beatles eventually, and she may have just um, brought those out more so. Sometimes those came out in political activity. Sometimes they come out in in adventurous uh, avant-garde art activity, and then you know fusing the two together. So um, she is not uh, she's not the, the the criminal that maybe. Um, was too easily applied to her in the in the years just after the breakup. She's a very easy target. And I yeah, and I think that um that's one thing that we talk about. Why is it why was it or even in retrospect um uh too easy to blame her and that and, and that blame then shifts from anything inherent in Yoko and more inherent in in society's flaws. Uh and so um that blame is uh you know, I mean the, uh, we look at it in one sort of funny way that even the the Yoko esque character um, uh, was not to blame for the breakup of Homer's barbershop quartet in the Simpsons episode. Uh, she makes an appearance there, and it's like, and it actually kind of for some of them they understood um, uh, recovering her reputation through looking her at her effect on on Barney, and even in that funny way they understand it. And I, I guess I wanted to point out, Chip, that. Uh, some of the entries that I read, I couldn't help but sort of feel what John was feeling early on, that he was attracted to some of what Yoko was doing because it was humorous. You know, before he appreciated her because she made him think a certain way. She also made him laugh. And, you know, in that sort of uh, culture of, of, of taking the piss and knocking people down a peg that never left him from his roots in Liverpool, he appreciated seeing the humor in things. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I just think it, it's a story I hadn't or I hadn't remembered or hadn't seen before. But the way that the, the chronicle piece <laughs> about the um, work of art that, that is, is, it shows up at Kenwood, uh, for lack of a better term, the period piece, the, the, the Kotex box art, is just, it's hilarious. Uh, it's just in John's dilemma of how do I explain this woman and her art that's coming to the house and what it is while Cynthia's there with her mother and everything. And it's, um, it's just, it's funny. Uh, and we know the, the directions that this takes, but 
so I think that, you know, uh, to look at the, at the humor of these things, even that some of the humorous attempts that they were criticized for to bring about peace and to advance their art, um, I think that that's a, a great way to uh, not, not necessarily a, a campaign to soften her image, but for students to understand what they were on about, you know, it, to look at some of those funnier aspects that have a poignant resonance to them. Well, Yoko did have a fantastic sense of humor, and uh, referring back to the Simpsons episode where she requested a single plum floating in perfume in a man's hat, uh, there was just this week I saw a Swedish art exhibit where somebody uh, entered precisely that, a black hat with a single plum floating in perfume. Oh, that's very funny. (laughs) And, and and Mo had it right away, too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Chip, the, one of the biggest things about John Lennon, was he was like a walking contradiction a lot of the times. He'd say one thing one day, the next day he'd say something different. In the early days, he hated the Beatle cartoons. And then in the 70s, he began to like them again. That's, that's you know, I, I accept that. But, uh, you know, from day to day, his outlook would change. That Did that play in at all uh, in preparing your book? Oh, very much so. John was notorious for contradicting himself. So for that alone, he was a terrible source for information. Uh, When we were writing the book, we we needed to be able to verify each of the entries with uh, multiple, multiple sources. And that might be why some stories you're familiar with aren't included is because they couldn't be verified. But, uh, John was used mainly for color and his quotes, but we didn't really use him as a source of information. When he said two or three weeks ago, he might have meant two or three days. He, he just was, a, you know, not a good source. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will tell you that, um, you know, I've interviewed Yoko, Jesus, maybe like 10 times or so over the years. Always very sweet. And... um you know, for me, I was even a fan of sometime in New York City as as a younger guy. It exposed me to some of these activities that John and Yoko were involved in. Um, in fact, I worked at I started at WBCN in 1981, and he was on BCN with Danny Schechter. But back right. in those days, I mean, BCN would play. You know, "Woman is the N word of the world," and uh, uh, They never took the F word out of uh, working class hero. Those are great days of radio. So that exposed me to uh, all of these great songs that was not a well-received album. And when I interview, whenever I interviewed Yoko, I would play a track from that album, Sisters Oh Sisters, uh, We're All Water. I would get pushback from fans, but Yoko would be pleased. I have many tapes of her saying, I can't believe you played that song. And I I tell her I play it because... I was a fan of that record. Was that a mistake for John to put out? Did he regret putting that album out? He didn't. He didn't regret any of those things, right? Even the wedding album. Well, I'm sorry. Even two virgins. I should say. Uh, I think there was a little regret in the later years about putting it out, and that it was it was very dated instantly mm-hmm. uh, because of it, its nature as a newspaper. Um, but he did consider it to be part of the canon, and and. And he was asking for trouble putting a picture of Nixon and uh, Chairman Mao on the cover, Dancing Naked, uh, you know, not, which was Yoko's idea. Oh, that was Yoko's was idea. Yoko's idea. And how a lot of the retailers got around it was they put a big sticker over the picture. 
<laughs> Very funny. Uh, Professor, did you have to want to add anything in? Well, I, I think that um, uh, uh, John's in, inherent contradictory nature is is um, is chronicled well. Where where um, he is, I think, a qualified source is when he speaks about his own confusion or his own ambivalence, um, uh, especially when it comes to you know, is he even sure about his his um, not so much affections for Yoko, but his understanding of her art because he was brought up and perfected um, the uh, having what Hemingway called a good bullshit detector, right? And that's what he was always about. Uh, you know, when he would say that, you know, avant-garde a clue or avant-garde is French for bullshit. Um, yet he started to slowly understand uh, Yoko's bullshit and somehow embrace it, but then question himself, am I doing the right thing? Because I always tried to say that that was garbage and he was he hated the pretension of of the art world and i think the whole movement um uh, bohemian movement of of uh, performance art and its roots maybe in in uh, greenwich village and that in that that milieu that yoko came from uh was uh, was a whole new was a whole new thing and i think it broadened the whole sense of what performance art was and maybe even john thought i've been doing this in a way he could look back at the where we're there performing one can lower Manhattan. Uh, so I think that that ambivalence comes through in the chronicle in a way that is tense when they when they do some of their 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 public um, jokester things or, or hijinks that the world doesn't always understand and very really embrace it. But you know, uh, I think in some ways uh, the uh, the their own detail and displaying it uh i think some the students will understand it as the very sort of early um <laughs> pre sort of evolutionary forms of of um self-creating social media you know i mean uh, were john and yoko the first instagrammers maybe in some ways uh with a lot of the public displays you know with billboards and the messages and uh the balloons and um you know i mean the the wedding album and uh, other things, Chachi, are very much multimedia projects before someone was thinking of multimedia. Uh, so, you know, I think that it's a, uh, if they were around doing their things today, and Yoko still has continued to do that, you take advantage of the tools that you have. And um, they, were, they were willing to use uh, society's uh, spectacle uh, to, to advance their cause. So I, and, I, and, I, and looking at it um, in the, in, in the early stages of what was going to be planned or what would happen next. That's why I think the, the Leninology uh, chronicles are, are, are really so fascinating because you see these things as they're about to happen before they're happen, what goes on behind the scenes, you know, I mean, and it's, it's filled with us being able to ponder the what ifs, you know, I was just fascinated Chachi, right? Chip, uh, that <laughs> John had initially wanted Yoko to go along with them to India <laughs> and, you know, what if she had actually made the trip? That's that's always, that's a fascinating thing, you know. Well, people, I, I've frequently been asked, what do you think John would be up to if he hadn't been taken from us? And I think he would have just gone wild with the internet. Can you imagine him mm -hmm. on Facebook? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Crazy with what's happening in politics today. And, you know, and I, I sit there and, and I, 
and I'm not a what if guy because everyone does that. What if, what if, but what if he stayed with May Pang? He would be with us today. His life would be different. He would be, you know, embracing everything that's happening today and certainly going back to see family in Liverpool. Cause I think Yoko kept him from family. Am I correct, Chip? Um, I wasn't there. There are stories that she would make contact to John difficult for family members. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I grew up just outside of Harvard Square, Chip. And uh, what what the professor just said brings me, reminds me of Al Cap. I worked in Harvard Square at a grocery store and I used to deliver groceries. I delivered groceries to Edwin Land, who discovered Polaroid, uh, Peter Wolf and Faye Dunaway. They lived right outside of Harvard Square. But I also delivered groceries to the home of Al Cap. Al lived right on Brattle Street, very well-to-do area in Cambridge. And um, I was amazed in your book, first of all, that John made John and Yoko made several appearances in Cambridge, Massachusetts, my hometown. And where was I at that point? Because I wish I had the wherewithal to know that. Certainly back then, you didn't have the internet. Um, but obviously, there's that memorable footage of Al Cap being such an a-hole to John and Yoko. And I would bring groceries into his back door. He had a couple of maids always baking. He had a giant wolf dog to keep people out of the house. And I was just so angered by Al Cap. That, that was quite an exhibition. And I think we can leave it at that. I mean, John, that's the one time that I think I've ever seen him lose his temper, except maybe in, in, on the let it be tapes on the get back tapes. Yeah. Yeah. Is he, he finally cracked with, with some of the shots that Al Cap was taking at Yoko. Really bad. And, uh, you know, and John and Yoko made some appearances in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? Yes. One, well, uh, one of my favorite quotes from John, uh, they were in Salem and seeing some of the sites and the crowd was gathering. and, And one of the people asked him, how long are you going to be staying in Salem? And he said about five minutes as he started to jet for the car. <laughs> very funny. Very, very funny. Chachi, I once, uh, uh, when I first moved to Boston to go to, to go to college, there was a, um, uh, there was a laundromat on uh, Newberry street, just mm-hmm. down a bit from DeLuca's market. And it was called laundromat to the stars. And uh, they had a plaque over several of the, uh, of the uh, dryers. And one said this dryer was used by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. So I don't know why they were there doing some laundry. Uh, You know, maybe they were doing whatever um, white linens to wrap themselves in and they needed to be cleaned. I don't know. Uh, But there were, there were some other uh, local celebrities who had those. And so I, I did, uh, you know, do my laundry once and, and use the dryer that John and Yoko used. Uh, uh, so it's interesting to hear about their their local appearances, uh, <laughs> their local appearances like that. Um, I think that was in so, May of uh, 76 yeah. when they when they were yep. at the laundry okay. and they were there to visit the uh, the guy that developed macrobiotics. And his name escapes me right now, but they were in town for three days to visit with him. And uh, that's when they used the the famous wow. laundromat. Do you remember every well, around entry? the corner? I don't know if they were if they were connected to it, but around the corner from that laundromat was um, a macrobiotic uh, health center called the Hippocrates Health Institute, and they 
uh, they grew things um, uh, hydroponically, and they were, and this was obviously well before um, laws had changed about medical marijuana. But they they grew a lot of uh, plants and herbs to treat uh, cancer uh, cancer patients who wanted to go there, um, and so it was the Hippocrates Health Institute, and I believe it was around uh, Dartmouth Street, uh, Dartmouth Street in Com Ave, sort of around that area. Mm. So I don't know if there was any connection there. Do you remember every entry into your book, Chip? <laughs> no, no, and, and more so with Eight Arms, which which was has just celebrated its twentieth anniversary. Wow! Uh, when we were uh, polishing it for the ebook version, it's I, I was looking at it and say, where on earth did you come up with this information? Who wrote? I, you know, I didn't even recognize it. But that book was was prepared because it was a book that I wanted that hadn't been published yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what happened with Leninology as well. Is we went so deep with it because it was it was important and it was it was something that I wanted to see that that hadn't been done properly. Mm-hmm. Has Yoko, Julian, Sean, anyone ever any of those reach out to you, acknowledge the book? Um Actually, the, the book was most recently acknowledged in the uh, the Lennon Give Me Some Truth box set. Really? It was a source. So, so the copies that uh, made it to Studio One and to Sean, I guess, were put to good use. Wow. Good for you. Congratulations Thank you. for that. That's fantastic. You were talking about footnotes, and there's also, I think it's a 130-page e-document uh, that we didn't print in the book because we're trying to keep the size down for overseas shipping, but it's a need document that you can get at the website that gives the source for absolutely every quote that's in the book. Wow. Wow. No so you can print that up and, and, and read along with it. If you, if you want to know, well, where did this come from? <laughs> that, that's your source. Wow. That's fantastic. It's a great book. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus has been in and out of John's life. I guess you could say, you know, starting with the, you know, we're, we're more popular than Jesus. And then, you know, Jesus showed up at Paul McCartney's house and he took him to a recording studio. He didn't want to tell Jesus, no, I, you know, you can't come in. And then, uh, and then John uh, had, it was in Greenwich village with Yoko when someone knocked on the door and said he was Jesus. John sent him away uh and and then later on john said he was jesus is that correct um i i think john declared himself <laughs> to be the son of god it, w- it was back in uh may of 68 and i think there were some chemicals that that were involved <laughs> in in his thought process i thought that was another great humorous part of the book Ch- chachi because he announces that I think around the same time as they're putting together whatever would be called a business plan or a proposal for Apple. And so it's almost like he's coming into a staff meeting <laughs> first item of the agenda. I'm Jesus. And it's like, okay, well, I guess he sets the agenda. Uh, so it's interesting that that comes out. Uh, he's, he's having those feelings or, or, or delusions, if you will. Um, <laughs> at the same time as they're trying to reinvent uh, uh, without dripping with uh, uh, messianic uh, um, references, of course, you know, the crucifixion and such. So, um, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a very, uh, very interesting time. Um, uh, I, I think one 
one, uh, I guess I don't want to call it chapter, uh, maybe a mini chapter or scenario that, that stood out to me. I had um, uh, interviewed uh, uh, Ivor Davis, who had traveled with the Beatles and the uh, 64 tour, but also had been present at the summit, at the meeting with Elvis Presley uh, in 65 out in Hollywood. And so um, I love the scenario of John getting to meet one of his other main cultural heroes, Brigitte Bardot. And um, I really thought he would have taken to that opportunity a little bit more as opposed to dropping acid with, was it Derek Taylor? And then uh, showing up at her hotel and then she goes out to dinner and they're just left there. Um, where, you know, that had been as as sort of a, a dominant figure for the young, uh, the young Lennon. And I think um, at least those who had talked about it at the time thought that uh, John uh, had kind of found someone like that with that artistic tint uh, when he met at uh, um, Astrid in Germany. But of course, you know, his buddy Stuart was in the way and doesn't catch up to that sort of, you know, um, uh, elusive artist, mysterious woman until he meets Yoko. But I love the, the, the Bardot. I don't, it, was that the only time he ever had a chance to meet her that you know of? Uh, that, as I know of, and then his meeting with uh, Chuck Berry was also kind of auspicious with uh, when they got up to perform and, and Yoko joined in and looked like on his microphone. And, and so he, he was able to meet many of his heroes. We can go back for the, the macrobiotics. Uh, they were in Boston in mid-September of 1976 to visit... Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, Michio Kushi, who developed macrobiotics. And uh, there was also a, a macrobiotic food store in Newberry Street, wow. I think called uh, um, Erewhon, which was an anagram for nowhere. But mm. they'd gone to Boston with, with, mm -hmm. to meet with them for a few days, and that's when they used the, the famous laundromat. Wow. Well, he, they were friends also, you know, I, I started at WBCN radio in 1981 and in the 70s, I would listen uh, to BCN all the time, which made me want to work there. And uh, we became friends after the fact, but Danny Schechter was a good friend of, of John's. So what was that all about? I mean, I know that Danny interviewed John, um, but can you give us some insight on that? They, uh, Danny interviewed John and Yoko uh, in early June 1973, and I'm still looking for a copy of that tape, by the way. Really? Uh, really. Um, we, we heard a little bit of it on the Lost Lennon tapes, but he, he interviewed them when they were at a, the uh, feminist conference mm -hmm. in uh, Cambridge. Right. And uh, one interesting thing that came out of the interview was John's talk of using videotape. And that's where they were really at at the moment. We're creating things with, with video. And uh, unfortunately we haven't seen the results of any of that work. Mm. Well, I, I, I know Danny's widow. So if there's ever any, any help I can give you, I, I will certainly do that in your writings. Were you looking to, um, correct, you know, right some wrongs in people's eyes, correct some misconceptions about John and Yoko? Uh, the book was basically started from scratch as, as if we didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And there were only a few books that I would uh, refer to because uh, I felt that they'd done their due diligence. But we created everything from contemporary news reports 
and studio documents and invoices and, and interviews with people that were, that were dated. And that's how we build our timeline. So a lot of those uh, misconceptions actually kind of corrected themselves. Hmm. Professor, you have a question? Uh, okay. No, I was no, listening intently uh, to the well, to the way the um, uh, the text was actually put together because I was okay. I was also curious about that. Chachi. Yeah, what just other chime in. But, might have been consulted. But Chip, when I interviewed Yoko one time, um, back when they were trying to deport John, uh, people were doing um, you know collecting signatures to attempt to keep him and Yoko in the country, and I participated in that. Uh, in the 70s, uh, collecting auto, uh, collecting information and signatures. And I get this document in, the, oh, you probably can't, let me see if I can shut this slide. No, off. I see it. I, I've got a copy of that. You have a copy of this. So go ahead. And I was going to say one thing that we did find in the book through Freedom of Information Act request was about 3,000 pages of information relating to the INS and John and Yoko. Wow. And within those were several of the letters that people were actually writing to their senators hmm. asking to keep John and Yoko in. I mean, these were still on file with the, with the INS. So um, I think we were able to uh, sharpen or, or add a lot more detail to that story and Leninology than anything else that's been out. Well, I showed Yoko uh, this document, what I got in the mail. In 1990, she could not recall that, but it certainly has a lot of very important people uh, on the side there that are supporting it. And then Yoko autographed it for me back in 1990, but she was quite impressed that I had this. And I'm sure there's so much going on that she would not remember. But yeah, the National Committee uh, for John and Yoko out of uh, New York City is one of my uh, little pieces. So I thought that was great. And that was actually, they did not, create that group that was created by a, a group of friends that were going through the legwork to collect the signatures and the so you're a first generation beetle fan where did you grow up well how did I, it all start for you i'm right on the edge i was born in, in june of 63 ah, so technically okay. i am a second generation beetle fan mm -hmm. um the first thing i remember is uh, is hearing it on wls where I lived, we were, we were able to pick up WLSAM and uh, heard a lot of it there. And I actually started collecting, I think, probably around 1974. And did you ever see the Beatles live? I never saw the Beatles live. I've seen Paul countless times, Ringo countless times, but I've never seen George. I never saw John. Ah, it's Ch Chachi. Uh, yeah. uh, Chip is a well. He's he's a contemporary of mine. He was he was born a month prior to myself. So, um, uh, my mother tells me I was uh, uh, I was I was uh, I was sick somehow in the in the playpen when she when uh, as the world turns was interrupted to announce the Kennedy assassination. So uh, <laughs> that's probably how uh, uh, Chip had heard of it as well, being, uh, being you know. unaware. Now, um, when you say, uh, what was the radio station again? So where was it that you grew up? Uh, Indianapolis and then uh, uh, Peoria for a brief time and then to St. Louis where I've kind of been in and out of the, the rest of my life. Uh-huh. So, yeah. But uh, uh, being around, uh, uh, in in that in that area, had you ever had any 
cause to uh, uh, track down Louise Harrison? No, uh, not really. Um, I know she was down in Florida for most, a lot of the 70s, I think. A friend of mine was a DJ on a station down there, and it, it uh, started a friendship with her, but uh, I never did. And when you say you started collecting in the mid seventies, what what would you where were you collecting beyond say you know records and bootlegs as they existed? Um, bootlegs came later. I, I got into those in, in high school, um, but I'd start collecting scraps of information and and things like that, and I'd I'd chronicle things and. That's basically what grew into these books was my my fascination with with documenting the history of something that was really cool to me at the time. Did you want to be an and author? Had you had you? Yeah, I was going to ask that, Chachi. Did you no, want to I was be an ask author, that. Chip? Uh, that was never my intent. I do have a memory of starting to write a biography of Tony Esposito, the the Chicago Blackhawks goalie. <laughs> Tony O. Yep. Butterfly uh, crouch. <laughs> that was, uh, that was my, my first attempt, but then it was, uh, I started writing for a, a magazine called illegal Beatles, which dealt exclusively with Beatle bootlegs and, and unreleased material. And, uh, I, I co-authored a book with Doug Sulpey, who's a publisher and another worldwide authority. And, uh, then I, I learned a lot from him and, and self-published both of these books on my own. So it was an evening and weekends project, a lot of evenings and weekends wow. and holidays. And um, did your wife leave you or are you still married? No, I'm still married. <laughs> I no. say that only because you worked on a book for 15 years. Yeah, no, 31 <laughs> years. So yeah. I, I would have been embarrassed if you said, yes, she left me. So I apologize <laughs> for that question. But man, I mean, 15 years of working on a book. I mean, it's she hung in there. She's a big fan. She, I, you know, I told her she couldn't read it because then there would have been problems, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I love this book. I mean, you just turn to a page and there's some interesting stories. I'm going to turn to a page right now. Let me find just one quick Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. I wonder if Mick Jagger appreciated his eternal time wedding gift of one of Yoko's art pieces, which in this case, it says here, was a clock with the hands removed. That's, uh, that's, it was on a Perspex stand, much like the Apple uh, piece that you've seen that has the decomposing Apple. And yeah, it, it yeah. just had a, 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 a clock face embedded in the Lucite. And it had a... Uh, uh, stethoscope attached to it so that you could listen to it not ticking. Unbelievable. I wonder if he still has it. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, <laughs> one thing I did want to mention about the book was that it was written without foresight. We don't know what was happening the next day. It doesn't say this would come back to haunt him six mm -hmm. months later or anything mm -hmm. like that. It was mm -hmm. written in a strictly linear fashion. Interesting. Uh, professor? No? Okay. You know what I thought was interesting? Um, no, I'm, I'm trying to get the image of that gift. I'm <laughs> trying to get the image of that gift uh, um, implanted in my, in my brain. It sounds like a, 
maybe inspired by or, or prefiguring someone like a Jeff Koons or who would uh, put things in loose sight, you know, the famous basketball uh, uh, work that he did in, in the, in the loose sight suspended or, um, you know, something of uh, Keith Haring, all those folks and Boscat, all those folks sort of post Yoko uh, and probably some of her, her circle as well, probably don't quite get as much, uh, uh, credit just because of everything else that they were uh, that they were associated with, but how they influenced uh, <laughs> contemporary art in a way. Um, I, I guess I, I was curious with, with the the writing and the and how this uh, it kept going over time. Um, is this something that you uh, when Chachi says if you had wanted to be a writer, but say through school or um, college or university, if that was part of it, did. Um, were there any other types of things that you studied that that helped in this process, uh, uh, or did this process, since you started as a as a collector, influence other work that you did, even in sort of you know academics? That you were always good at research, you could always want to know the story behind the story. Uh, did one sort of feed the other in a particular way? I got a D plus in freshman English, so writing was never my forte. Um, I do feel that I have a a good BS detector to, like you said, find the story behind the story and weed things out that that just didn't smell right. Um, I I studied architecture for a few years and ended up in construction, which I think uh, helped with the design aspects of the book because that was Mm -hmm. put together by myself as well. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yep. Wow. I, that's why, that's why I want to, <laughs> that's why I want to actually sometime, you know, be able to see the piece itself. Maybe um, when the world isn't as, uh, as sick and, and Chachi can come back to visiting my class, he'll bring uh, Leninology along with him. So I can actually see it. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll have, I'll have gloves on though. I don't want to have to resort to lighter fluid. I don't think I have any handy. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure you don't put it straight on the book, put it on something else and rub the book. And that yes. Helps. Yeah, a microfiber cloth, perhaps. See that there you your, go. your construction experience helped in that, Chip. You know, I, I get the impression that um, John loved old movie stars. Did he? Yes, yes, he was. He was. He was smitten with with meeting the movie stars. And uh, you'll have to forgive me. I'm, I'm I'm forgetting the names, but there were some that lived in the Dakota and and others in in New York City. And he was, you know. He collect autographs just like the rest of us. Yeah, back in according to your entry on April seventh, nineteen seventy three, uh, they Ringo told John about this party to come to. It was a um, Barbara Streisand charity event, mm-hmm. and uh, Ringo said, "Oh, you know, Burt Lancaster, Rod Steiger, Kirk Douglas, all you know, they all might be there." He said, uh, and John never got to meet Kirk Douglas. It says here in your book he was disappointed. But I also, you know, besides that, you know, the idea of George Harrison and Barbara Streisand reportedly at the kitchen table discussing the possibility of recording an album together. That's pretty amazing if that had happened. There, there's pictures online of it. it, it they aren't hard to find if, if you were to search for them of, of Streisand with, with uh, John Yoko and Ringo. Wow. And of course, you know, Barbara <laughs> Streisand did a duet album with uh, Barry Gibb. So it did happen in some respects there. So I thought that was an interesting entry uh, that he loved old movie stars and watching old movies. Oh, he, you know, he was a TV addict and, and a, a lot of the time it would be without the sound on. Mm-hmm. And some of the most fascinating home recordings uh, that, I've, that I've been 
uh, able to hear uh, or John making up stories to go along with what he's seeing on the screen. Really? And they're almost <laughs> revolution number nine in nature because what he'd do then is it would be on a twin track machine and he'd, he'd run up the other fader and record responses to these non sequiturs that he'd said earlier on the tape. So you just have this bizarre combination of conversation and ideas and, and music and scraps of television. Um, it's been neat. We've been able to date some of these tapes by going back and finding out uh, storylines on As the World Turns. And, and uh, you know, the, the book definitely couldn't have been done without the Internet. Unbelievable. You know, and I want to talk about Alan Klein, because what I find interesting about John is, you know, and I think because Alan was an orphan that might have endeared uh, him to John. Uh, you know, certainly they had a relationship and then they, there was lawsuits, but he kind of still remained friends with Alan Klein and the, even ba uh, Morris Levy with the rock and roll album. He still kind of remained friends. It seemed like the lawsuits were business and personal was, was different than business, but precisely, he, you know, he stayed friends with Klein throughout. Um, I, I think Levy when that, that's when it got a little near the knuckle as John would put it. Yeah. Well, my wife, Stephanie, worked uh, with Morris Levy for a little while. She worked at Strawberries. Strawberries. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> you know, and I, I regret this because every year uh, I would get an invitation to hop on a big bus and drive to Morris Levy's farm for his annual barbecue. And I passed on it many times and now I regret it. Uh, but he was an interesting cat, you know, really interesting guy. May Pang described the house as a, as a, a French bordello yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out in the farmland. So, no, but I spent a couple of years in Nashua, New Hampshire, and a drive down to, to uh, Harvard Square to, to shop for bootlegs. And, really? Yeah. Oh, I grew up in Harvard Square. I worked at Sage's Market. I was there in the square when the hasty pudding uh, people honored John Wayne and he came through Harvard square in a tank. And uh, it was, it was probably some of the most enjoyable years of my young life being in Harvard square. It's not the same at all anymore, but back then Harvard square was like a heartbeat. That area was just so great. You could be in college On without the weekends. actually having to go to class. Yes, exactly. And I would, yeah, <laughs> I'd, uh, um, I would buy all my records at the Harvard. A chip Coop, on the weekends. So. There was a. Go ahead, David. On, on the weekends, there used to be almost like a flea market, uh, open air, um, and Chachi. I forget the actual name of the church, but it's the church at the head of Church Street. Uh, you know that used to lead down to the Harvard Square Cinema, and on the weekends they would have flea markets, and that's where I would run into a lot of the bootlegs. I never really had the money for it, but that's where I first saw. Um, the Black Album, uh, and uh, and all of those, you know, outtakes and like however many, uh, however many uh, LPs were part of that. But uh, um, I don't know if you had ever happened there because when you said you went to Harvard Square looking for boot bootlegs, I imagine you know it was some of the usual haunts there in terms of the the used record stores. But I remember that sort of flea market on the weekends in the fall specifically uh, outside of that church at the head of Church Street. So I don't know oh, if you, you ever made made the rounds there. You both remember the ultra rare track series when, when they came out. I have a right huge in. deal. Those were, 
I, I remember driving down to Boston in an ice storm because they had a, just gotten in a copy of volumes three and four. So and, you know, luckily I survived and, and boy, that, that was really a golden age. Of, it, it really was. I bought a, the majority of my stuff at the Harvard coop. They had the most fantastic record department, multiple floors. Back then they had a poster department and I would just go buy all my Beatle posters there. There was discount records, Columbia records. I mean, it was just the place to be in the seventies. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, but we're talking to the great Chip Mattinger, and um, boy, what a great book, right, Professor Leninology? Fantastic! Uh, uh, the 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 devils in the details in this book is all about the details. That's right. Sorry, Chip Mattinger, I should say, and uh, that's where you it? go to get it. Yes, let's say that because you know what, this makes a perfect gift. Leninology.com. And I will tell you, if you're a Beatles fan, get one for yourself. If you have a Beatles fan in your life, get one for him or her. It is such a profoundly interesting book. I just love it. And it was one of the greatest days when I got a copy because I was very envious of Eric Taros having one. And I was close to buying one until one was gifted to me. And I will never forget that. Uh, I'll give it. Eric, a shout out here. He helped to push this over the finish line with his with some, his uh, uh, production skills. So he, uh, he, he was a great help in, in getting this book. He is finished. a super talent. I tell you, a dear friend of both of us, and he's a super talent. And um, one of the most interesting people out there is Eric Taros. You could talk for hours with him on the phone. He's just a delightful person. And uh, I know he loves you, Chip, and he did a great job in helping you out. And what a beautiful book, Leninology. I want to thank you, Chip Mattinger, for coming on the show today. And uh, we only wish you the best. What's next for you, Chip? What are you working on? Well, when I wrote Leninology, I had it in mind that it was going to be a multiple volume series. So some of that 15 years was spent on other books or, or chapters or, or whatever you care to call them. Uh, so there's, there's a session book that's well along the way, uh, a book on the home recordings and, uh, you know, the happenings and the bed-ins and, and all of the other events that kind of document the footage that's out there and the recordings that are out there and goes through the recording process in much greater detail than Leninology. So those are still on the burner, on the back burner at the moment, but uh, they still could very well happen. You know, I, I found it really amazing, that whole story about John uh, with the, with the, the boat, um, the, the sailboat or whatever they were riding in a schooner where he took over the wheel in the middle of a storm and, and what an amazing thing for him to do. Kind of like, you know, his, the um his I'm catharsis talking, yeah with his dad being a, a merchant marine i think and there he is you know driving this boat through a major storm and he made it through the night while everyone was seasick but him okay no i thought okay, you, maybe you long, sorry. no that's okay <laughs> so it wasn't really a question it was just a statement but chip mattinger thank you <laughs> so much for coming on get back to the beatles we're sponsored by subaru of new england and uh 
Professor, any final words before we say goodbye to Chip? Uh, just to appreciate his time, uh, Chachi, and um, uh, I just I was surprised how much fun I had reading uh, the expert uh, the excerpts, and then and there's a lot of there's a lot of good fun bits, funny bits, and anytime these stories or history can make me laugh, I really appreciate it. And anybody that wants to to, to have a look at the book before actually purchasing it, you can download the first seventy five pages or all of nineteen sixty eight on uh, the Leninology website. Wow. It's a beautiful book. I'm just, I'm sorry I get distracted because I get into reading it. It's such a great book. We sincerely appreciate it. Leninology, Strange Days Indeed, A Scrapbook of Madness. Professor, we'll try to get you a copy at some point, maybe next Christmas. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) thank you, Chip Mattinger. Uh, Thank you, Professor. And please tell your students about this fantastic book. Thank you. Okay, Chip, have a great day. Stay safe, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com. The Boston Podcast Network.